Introduction I know what it's like to feel alone. That's why I decided to write a guide on living and recovering with mental illness. No such guide existed when I personally needed it, and many other people I have loved, including my father, or who I have come to know as a doctor, colleague, or friend, have been without a guide to turn to as well. My dad was a fun, charismatic, loving, and generous man who was episodically ill with bipolar disorder. Back when he needed help, our family had no tools to navigate the convoluted mental health system. When he was hospitalized, we didn't even consider discussing next steps with the professionals who were caring for him because we didn't know that was something to discuss. We did not have the language to talk with his doctors or with each other. My father's doctors did not offer any counsel about what my dad could do to reduce his symptoms or extend the time between his episodes, and we knew nothing of the science that might help us. There was no book to read that laid out options for treatment. We were ashamed, isolated, and uninformed. When other people were sick, friends, colleagues, and family members sent cards and brought casseroles, but when my father was ill, our family tried to pretend nothing was wrong, and even the people who knew something was wrong did not send or bring anything. No casseroles, no flowers, no cards. I decided to become a psychiatrist to find answers to my questions about my dad and his illness, to help him, my family, and other families. When I announced I was applying to medical school, my family was initially thrilled. My older siblings, Sue and Joe, had been the first in our family to attend college. Our relatives in prior generations were security guards, seamstresses, salespeople, and ministers. So, my decision to set aside my initial interest in political science and history to study medicine was greeted with praise. A doctor, a shame-reducing, home run. However, my choice to go into psychiatry rather than becoming a successful surgeon or cardiologist was much less well received. For decades, Dad held out hope that I would choose another specialty, calling me during my psychiatric residency to ask, how was the operating room? He loved me deeply, but he didn't want this path for me. It was just too close to his deepest source of shame. I was also surprised that, at the time, psychiatry was not ready to, ready to consider my motivation for entering the profession as legitimate. On my psychiatric residency applications, my essay about my dad's illness and my quest to help him seemed to violate an unwritten rule. It was ignored at programs across the nation, while interviewers engaged with me on topics relating to the practice of medicine, my volunteer work, or even college football. One person at a prestigious hospital told me my reason for entering the field was a terrible one, but might have been acceptable if my father had been a psychiatrist himself and not just a patient. I was devastated. Only one person who interviewed me, Ned Hallowell, told me that my personal experience could be helpful in my professional life, and so I joined his program at the Massachusetts Mental Health Center in Boston, why I'm still on the faculty. Fortunately, sharing one's personal experience of being affected by mental health conditions is becoming more acceptable in applications to the mental health field.
I was a bit lost when neither my dad nor the field of psychiatry wanted me to keep going, but my love for him had set the course. Every professional choice I made was inspired by my desire to learn about the possibility of recovery from mental illness from every possible angle. Since then, I have worked in almost every kind of role in the mental health field and in almost every kind of setting and system. If you look at my resume, you might think I'm either very curious or have trouble keeping a job. I was curious about the two distinct cultures of addiction and mental health, so I worked on a dual diagnosis assertive community treatment team. Because I wanted to improve policies, I became the chief psychiatrist and commissioner at a major state department of mental health. As I began to see how early mental health issues start, I trained as a child and adolescent psychiatrist and had a private practice for adolescents, became a school consultant, and worked to reduce the use of restraints for children in hospital units. After watching the state mental hospitals close in a slow-motion tragedy, I worked in a recovery-oriented human service nonprofit organization helping people with serious mental illness live independently and developed clinical services for unhoused people in Boston. Curious about how we get new medicines, I was part of a research team that studied clozapine's impact on reducing suicide risk. Working at a major health plan taught me how malleable and variable insurance benefits are. After learning there was a better way to serve people early in their course of psychosis, I volunteered for five delightful years at an early psychosis program. Along the way, the National Alliance on Mental Health Illness, NAMI, found me, and it has been the joy of my professional life to work as NAMI's psychiatrist. I have, in short, spent my career learning and thinking about life with mental illness, recovery, and what a practical how-to guide would need to cover to provide support and guidance to others facing the challenges my family and many others confronted. Now, finally, and with the help of hundreds of thousands of others who have shared expertise, wisdom, and lessons of lived experience, I have written the book that my dad and family so desperately needed in the hope that it eases the way for individuals and families everywhere. This book contains information relevant to people independent of their loved one's diagnosis. At the same time, it provides guidance relevant specifically to people with certain illnesses. It also addresses concerns that arise for people of different cultures and identities as they navigate the complex world of mental health treatment. The book will help those affected by anxiety disorders, attention deficit disorders, bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, depressive disorders, disassociative disorders, dual diagnosis slash substance use disorders, eating disorders, obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, psychosis, schizoaffective disorder, and schizophrenia. Some of the people who share their stories here may have co-occurring autism spectrum disorders or developmental disorders, but I will not be addressing those important conditions in depth as they deserve a guidebook of their own. 
Mental illness and recovery are human experiences, so I consider experience-based evidence an authoritative source for this book. Individuals who have lived with mental health conditions are a source of untapped wisdom on how to build a life and thrive while living with mental health conditions. My goal is to synthesize this anecdotal evidence with traditional research-based evidence to provide practical, compassionate advice and to offer the comfort that comes from knowing that wherever you are on your recovery journey, you are not alone. For this book, I was fortunate to interview in-depth 130 people from Cape Cod to Hawaii and from Anchorage to San Antonio, all of whom self-identified as having a mental illness or loving someone who does. The age of interviewees ranges from 16 to 100. They are from different races, ethnicities, religions, sexual orientations, socioeconomic and educational backgrounds, gender identities, national origins, abilities, and cultures. Some of the people I interviewed have been unhoused, incarcerated, or lost jobs and relationships. Others work as physicians, carpenters, musicians, school teachers, or police officers. Some are on disability, and others are veterans. These people told me about their diagnosis. Some have had many diagnoses, and some took a long time to get the one diagnosis that formed a base upon which they could build their recovery. Their journeys were often very trying for them and for their families. These lived experience experts, as I think of them, have taken a master class in living with some combination of the extremes of mood, thought, perception, addiction, and behavior while also dealing with the rest of life. Things like developing an identity, integrating their experience into their sense of self, building friendships, raising kids, finding love, and establishing careers. Some have used their experience to serve others, volunteering on a crisis hotline, providing mobile crisis peer support, training police officers on de-escalation techniques, or becoming a social worker. The 130 interviewees had on average about 20 years of lived experience of mental health conditions. Together, they have more than 200 years of experience from which the rest of us can learn. You will hear from them in their own words throughout this book. In the interviews, I asked people who lived with mental health conditions open-ended questions about what they had learned when they first thought they had a concern, what their experience was of treatment and services, what worked for them, and what did not, how their culture or identity impacted their journey, and how they defined recovery. I asked family members similar questions. Families are often a key ingredient in recovery, and I was fortunate to learn from many families who have young and adult children living with mental illnesses. I also interviewed siblings and those, like myself, who are the children of people who live with a mental illness. Given the prejudice and discrimination many still face, you might think people would be reluctant to engage in intimate discussions of their experiences of illness and their quest for recovery. However, the people I interviewed told me they cared about feeling better, being in less pain, 
developing coping tools, building a life, and by being interviewed for this book, sharing their experience to help others. Family members know the trap of isolation and blame, so they also wanted to step forward to share what they have learned. Everyone I interviewed chose to use their real name in this book to lead with their experience and reduce the shame associated with these issues. Most of the interviews didn't care much about the imperfect state of neuroscience or the meaning of imperfect terms like mental illness, mental health condition, or brain disorder. When you talk to people, they just want to learn, teach, and connect. They want to stop the cycle of secrecy and isolation, and they want to help you and your family. In part one, I review what we know about mental illness, what we don't know, and how our understanding has evolved. I look at mental health conditions through the lenses of development and trauma. Sharing stories from experience, I cover the imperfect science of diagnosis, why diagnosis is a process, how getting an accurate diagnosis can help, and why an accurate diagnosis is not a prerequisite for effective care. And I explain current approaches to treatment and how integrating the best of the traditional medical model of care with a newer and evolving recovery model offers the best chance for the most favorable outcome. My perspectives on these topics are intended to frame and introduce parts two, three, and four, in which people with lived experience of mental illness and thought leaders in many mental health fields share their expertise. In part two, individuals describe in their own words what they learned, how their culture or identity influenced their experience, what mistakes they made, and what made a difference during their recovery. In part three, we hear from family members of people with mental illness. In this book, family refers to people related by biology, caregiving choice, or community. Families who have learned how to communicate, practice self-care, and advocate for their loved ones serve as beacons of hope for those of us beginning a challenging and unknown journey. Unfortunately, not all journeys end well when it comes to mental illness. Families who have faced the hardest challenges, including the worst possible outcomes, share how they responded. Finally, in part four, we turn to the traditional experts. Mental health researchers do important work every day, but their research is often not well translated to the public. To get this information out of people in plain, non-scientific language, I bring many thought leaders together to answer the questions people most frequently ask me about living with a mental health condition. In this part of the book, renowned researchers, innovators, and activists share wisdom on the state of the art of mental health care at the time of this writing. Over the years, I have fielded thousands of questions from people seeking insight and guidance into mental illness recovery, and I know that millions more Americans are seeking answers to the same questions every day, whether for themselves or for someone they love. Forty years ago, I was one of those people, desperate for answers I could not find. Even as a young boy, I had understood that something was very wrong with my dad, but I did not know the first thing about what it was. All I knew was that he was taken from our house by a police officer at the front door while he was screaming.
After his hospitalization at Byberry State in Philadelphia when I was eight years old, we moved to Michigan. I later learned that Dad had lost his job in Philadelphia after that episode, but that his company, Chef Boyardee, transferred him to another sales job in Detroit. That kind of corporate loyalty is unusual today for people in similar situations. It meant we could count on his job and his income to afford secure housing and food. It meant we didn't have to move from shelter to shelter, so I could go all the way through school in one school district and there meet my lifelong friend, Marty Derda, who has been beating me at wiffle ball for close to five decades. These fundamental supports, housing, food security, and connection, were part of what we now call the social determinants of mental health, and they were all in my favor. I was also white, which gave me advantages I didn't understand then. Even with all these advantages, there was a lot of heartache in my family. One of my darkest moments was while I was a college student sitting in my car in the parking lot of Northville Regional Psychiatric Hospital near Detroit where my dad, once again, had been admitted as a patient. My loving, playful, generous father struggled all his life with severe bipolar disorder and often required months of state hospital to care to bring him back from mania and psychosis. I remember feeling like no one understood my pain and that there was no one on earth I could talk to about it. When I later returned to campus, I described the experience to my girlfriend as not that bad. I didn't say anything to my loving older siblings who had moved out of the house by then and had formed their own busy young families. Dad's condition was not a secret to us, yet we all felt so much shame that each of us suffered alone in silence. I was haunted by images of my father full of anger throwing beer bottles or drooling while sedated by powerful antipsychotic drugs, but it never occurred to me to see a mental health professional. That night in the parking lot, it seemed hopeless for my dad and for our whole family. Fortunately, change was coming. At the exact time I was sitting in that parking lot outside Northville Regional Hospital in 1979, a group of 284 people from around the nation was gathering in Madison, Wisconsin. They were primarily the parents of adult children with severe and persistent mental illness, tired of the way they and their children were treated both by mental health professionals and in the world and frustrated by the lack of support services. They were meeting to bring their voices together, and their meeting was the beginning of what became NAMI, an organization that would one day take my life's greatest heartache and, as it has done for millions of others, connect me to a community and a purpose. Some of the parents at that critical meeting had already formed their own smaller groups at home, the largest such group was in San Mateo, California, where Tony Hoffman, Fran Hoffman, and Eve Oliphant had formed Parents of Adult Schizophrenics, PAS. They had held a conference prior to the Madison Convention and were key in created momentum for a national organization. The grassroots movement was growing. The late Eleanor Owen, who turned 100 years old in 2021, 
had helped to form another early group in her own home state of Washington after a tragedy in her local community. I look at the headline and thought, I will call that family. I know what they're going through, she told me. Eight strangers did exactly the same thing. Within a week, we met around my dining room table and drafted the outline for the Washington Advocates for the Mentally Ill, WAMI. That established our local organization. Eleanor, like other early leaders, when connected with people across the country who agreed that a national organization was needed, and they decided to establish the National Meeting in Madison. Lori Flynn, who would serve as executive director of NAMI from 1984 to 2000, got to know many of the founders, including Bev Young and Harriet Scheldler. They'd had such a terrible time, Lori recalled. They'd had so many locked doors, and to be opening some of those doors just by sharing the truth of their experiences with each other really felt affirming. They thought they were going to make a difference for the next generation, and indeed, they did. That momentum continues today, and sharing first-person experiences remains critical to NAMI's work and mission. Every year, millions of people are affected by mental illness. In 2020, in the early stages of the COVID-19 pandemic, that number was higher than ever. In a Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, study, more than 41% of Americans reported clinically significant mental health symptoms that year, double the prevalence in years past. The authors of that study noted an even greater impact of the pandemic on younger people, adult unpaid caregivers, and racial and ethnic minorities. Too many of us and our families, friends, and caregivers are confused, afraid, and overwhelmed. We may not know what we are experiencing is an illness. We may be worried about a loved one who denies that anything is wrong. Some of us know we need help, but we don't know how or where to find it. Or we find ourselves scrambling anew when a treatment or medication that is used to work no longer seems adequate. The mental health system in the United States is chaotic, underfunded, and often hard to assess. Many healthcare professionals and institutions are wonderful, but they're affordable only for the rich. At NAMI, the questions keep coming to me. What does it mean when different doctors give me different diagnoses? When is my adolescent just being a teenager, and when is her mood something to worry about? What if my insurance company will not cover my treatment? This treatment, medicine, community, faith, practice made such a difference for me. How can I share or make a career of my knowledge with others? NAMI has been helping millions of Americans seeking answers to those and many other questions for more than 40 years. Composed of a national umbrella organization and over 650 state and local affiliate organizations serving communities in 49 states, it has become the largest grassroots organization in the United States helping people with mental illness and the families navigate recovery. Thousands of members are devoted to raising public awareness and providing advocacy, education, and support so that all individuals and families affected by mental illness can build better lives. At NAMI, we understand that mental illness affects not just the brain, but every aspect of human life. 
social, emotional, vocational, spiritual, even philosophical. We understand that one person's mental health condition also affects the lives of family members, caregivers, and friends. Why is this book for both people with mental health conditions and family members? Because that is who NAMI is now. NAMI was founded as a family group and has, through the board elections and intention, become a group for both families and for people living with these conditions. This evolution adds depth, compassion, and at times, tension to the movement that is NAMI. One of these tensions is how to refer to people who experience mental health challenges themselves to distinguish them from family members. We now use the term peers, though of course, if you're a family member, you will also have peer family members. Many people qualify as both peers and family members. NAMI embraces the tension that can arise in enacting this radical idea to welcome all into the mental health space. Families and peers may disagree about what is and what isn't a symptom of illness, about what treatment is and is not needed, or about the use of leveraged or forced treatment. The belief that listening to alternative viewpoints deepens understanding and is at the core of why NAMI has chosen to be inclusive. The collective power of peers and families help to move legislation and to change attitudes in our society. We also celebrate the richness that flows from these different perspectives. At NAMI, family members and peers are joined in the same mission, but not with the same perspective. I am still at times astonished by the impact of the work NAMI has done to make mental illness something we can talk about openly so we can recover together. NAMI has developed and offers a set of peer-led support and education programs in a variety of community settings, from houses of worship to schools to NAMI affiliates, and now online. Much of our programming is offered in Spanish as well as English for both peers and for families. NAMI's national helpline, 1-800-950-NAMI, staffed by volunteers aged 21 to 80 plus who have lived experience of mental illness, helps many thousands of people annually find resources, information, and support. NAMI also trains volunteers to become better advocates, and many of the gains in the field are tied to NAMI's advocacy efforts. We have come a long way. Over the decades, my father fought off every attempt I made to discuss his illness. My choice to go to medical school and then residency was probably more helpful for me than for him. He did take his lithium more often over time, but he never engaged in the kind of conversation about his experience that is common in recovery today. But I think, in the end, he did appreciate in his own way what I had attempted to do. On his deathbed, he told me, I am sorry for all the hard times. It was the only time he ever raised the subject of his illness, a lifelong challenge that had begun for him at age 17 and lasted for 70 years, until his death at 87. In conversation, this simple statement was an incredible gift to me. I know how lucky I am to have had that moment. I am indebted to the people who chose to tell their story in this book and to serve others instead of choosing privacy. To be so open and so generous in sharing your experience is a game-changing, shame-reducing way of living. 
am grateful for your courage and leadership. This book is for my father, Joe Duckworth, and for the millions of people like him and who those who love him. I could not have written it without the lifelong support of my often overwhelmed and loving family of origin. My mother, Wanda, my siblings, Joe and Sue. I also thank my adopted NAMI family. There is a NAMI group or organization somewhere near your community, and there is hope. We will welcome you with open arms. You are not alone. Author's Note Self-Identification The individuals and families you will meet throughout this book have each provided me with a brief description of who they are and how they would like to be identified. While many included their race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, or other cultural identity in their description, some did not. I intentionally did not offer my opinion on, interfere with, edit, or consider outside opinions on how people chose to identify themselves. The inconsistencies are therefore a reflection of the unique personalities and individual choices of the people who have so generously shared their experiences and perspectives. Methods. People in the NAMI community and beyond volunteered to be interviewed for this first-person as expert book. Before the actual interview, I spoke to each person about the idea of the book and addressed their questions. I used an interview protocol approved by an institutional review board, IRB. After they gave permission, my colleague Jordan Miller and I conducted the interviews in the form of online Zoom conversations. One was done in person. The conversations were recorded and then transcribed. When people elected to share their understanding of their diagnosis, I took them at their word as no doctor-patient relationship was entered. Given the informality of spontaneous conversational speech, I have taken some liberties in polishing quotes from verbatim transcripts so that they read well and convey meaning clearly as written text. For example, we eliminated some ums, likes, and repetitions, and occasionally sequenced sentences to clarify the sequence of events in someone's story. Interviewees were given the opportunity to review the edited quotes to ensure that the text accurately reflected both how they spoke and what they meant to say. Demographics. In this book, you'll meet each person individually as they describe themselves in their own words. Note that not every person answered every demographic question, and there were no pre-written boxes to check. That said, our community of lived experience experts were from 38 states of 11 races and ethnicities and across the spectrums of both gender and sexuality. Interviewees represented 25 different faith orientations, over 50 occupations, and reported ages from 16 to 100 with one person noting that she was old as dirt. I am grateful for each of them. Scope and Substance Finally, this book addresses the experience of recognizing, getting help and treatment for, and living and recovering with a mental health condition regardless of the diagnosis. While it does contain some information on treatments, research developments, and best practices for some specific conditions, it is not comprehensive. For example, eating disorders, which can also occur, co-occur with other mental health conditions and disassociative identity disorder, which can be rooted in trauma, are only touched 
on in these pages. There are many other helpful and enlightening books and resources available that focus on treatments for and recovery with specific diagnoses and conditions. We guide you to some of the ones NAMI members have found most helpful in the resources section, page 389.